0: excited to be with you this morning. I wanted to celebrate our worship team. I was hoping they'd come out about right now. This last Sunday, this last Tuesday, we had an x 29 event here. Whoop, 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 whoop over here. I uh, wanted to just give it up for these guys. Uh, they led our x 29 conference this last week that we hosted here and just wanted to give a big shout out, whoop, whoop to you guys. So thanks for all you all do. Very good, very good. Well, I'm jumping in, guys. We're going to be in John 19 this morning. Um, this last fall, um, Alex and I re-watched The Lord of the Rings, and if you haven't watched, uh, I would just say pause whatever dumb show you're watching and, and watch it, because whatever show you're watching, you're probably not going to remember, and you will rem- remember the, the the glory that takes place in The Lord of the Rings. In um, The Lord of the Rings uh, by J.R.R. Tolkien um, the, the premise revolves around these two kingdoms that are colliding together in this majestic way. There's forces of good represented by you know the realm of Gondor, and I won't get into all the details. But there's allies, and then there's all these kind of things that are happening. There's the dark lord Sauron and his stronghold of Mordor. And so there's like this collision course of these two kingdoms that are taking place. And Gondor is one of the last remnants of uh, the once great kingdom that was uh, previously occurring and he has these people that are a part of his rule and reign trying to fight against Sauron and we have this collision course of these two two kingdoms and the premise of the Lord of the Rings centers around this quest for these this, to destroy the one ring and you have this quest of these this Motley crew of sorts of of people that try to combat and end up throwing the ring into the fire. And so though fictional, and again, spoiler alert, no, like it's on you if you haven't watched it yet. On you 100%. And though it's fictional, it pulls you into this marvelous storyline that we all feel and we all long for. This, This story of good and evil. This story of justice and injustice. This longing for a hero to come and rescue us from the the pains of this world. We all feel it in different ways. C.S. Lewis says this about the reality of fiction kind of pulling us into reality. Uh, He says, Now as myth transcends thought, incarnation transcends myth. The heart of Christianity is a myth, which is also a fact. The old myth of the dying God without ceasing to be myth comes down from the From the heaven of legend and imagination to the earth of history, it happens at a particular date and a particular place, followed by definable historical consequences. We pass from Balder or or Osiris dying nobody knows when or where, to a historical person crucified under Pontius Pilate. By becoming fat, it does not cease to be myth. That is the miracle. See, the story of Christianity... It's like the Lord of the Rings, but it's come true. It's like all these famous fables, but it's come true in that God has come to rescue us. And we're part of this story. So this morning we will see these two kingdoms collide together in the trial of Jesus before his death. We're in a teaching series series. Uh, during Lent. We've been in a broader teaching series of the Gospel of John. And in this specific time, we're in John 17 through 19. And we're walking through, we're slowing down as we lead up to this hour, this moment of Jesus' death, honing in on these chapters, wanting to, in this Lenten season, be invited into this invitation to know God, to experience Him, to study Him, to grow in Him. That's the design of Lent, to Pull away from certain things and to lean into that imitation of everlasting life, which is to know him. And so I just want to give you an encouragement. You're two weeks in to land. You're like, gum, I have just fumbled over and over again, two steps forward, 36 steps backwards. If you feel like that's you, you can reset just because you might have fumbled through things that maybe you wanted to lean into, don't allow that to keep you from this moment and from the opportunity to lean in in this Lenten season. I invite you into that. I invite myself into that because, again, it's by grace that we've been saved, not by works. And so allow that to remind you, even in this Lenten season, to lean in. So we got a trial and we got the tale of two kingdoms happening here. We're going to pick up in John 18 and finish up in John 19. If you remember last week, Jesus was arrested, and he had this moment uh, with his disciples as a lot happened and some betrayal and things like that, and we pick up in John 18, verse 12. It says this, so the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. So we begin here that Jesus goes before Annas and Caiaphas. And we'll kind of get a little history here to better understand what's happening. Uh, Only John gives us a preliminary interrogation before Annas. All the other Gospels just give us a focus on Caiaphas. And so Annas was the uh, father-in-law of Caiaphas. He was the high priest prior to Caiaphas, so from 6 AD to 15 AD, Annas was the high priest. And the, the Romans had removed him from that office. Yet he still wielded a good considerable amount of power as the former high priest. Again, the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the current high priest during Jesus' ministry. So Annas was the patriarch of sorts of the high priestly reign during that time. And so Jesus is questioned by Annas First, before Caiaphas, because again, Annas wielded the ultimate power here. And so we pick up again in verse 19. It says this, The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. And Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have Heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. And when he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hands, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? And Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? And is then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. So we have two matters that uh, come into question as Jesus is presented before Annas. Again, he goes, Annas before Caiaphas. And the two questions are around his disciples and his teachings. First, his disciples. There is an emphasis and a focus that they've watched the popularity of Jesus increase. And they're questioning why he has the right to have a following like he has. And then second, with his questions. The fundamental question about Jesus' authority uh, being theological and then later being political, they have a concern that his teachings are leading the Jews astray. So there's questions about his his followers and then they have questions about his teaching. And so the official, and as Jesus responds, comes to Jesus and and slaps him across the face. And that's how you get into a fight. That's not something you should do. Never slap somebody in the face. But the irony of this claim is so interesting that the great high priest, Jesus, is disrespected and slapped by a high priest official because of disrespect. It's like imagining a child slapping their parent because the parent disrespected the child for unloading the dishwasher. It's like, what are we doing here? And yet this man slaps Jesus across the face, though so he's the great high priest. And then Annas sends Jesus to Caiaphas. And Caiaphas, in the Gospel of John, just spends a little bit of time with Jesus before he sends him over to Pilate, who we'll get into uh, in just a minute. So Caiaphas was the ruling high priest from eighty. 18 to 80, 36. And so he was the high priest during the time of Jesus' reign. Caiaphas in John 11 had predicted the necessity of the death of Jesus. Caiaphas charged Jesus with blasphemy in Matthew 26. Caiaphas sent Jesus to Pilate to have the death sentence uh, given to him. And see it carried out. After Jesus' death, Caiaphas persecuted the Christians during that time. And what's interesting in 1990, just a few centuries, uh, and by centuries, I mean decades ago, uh, they found the bones, yeah, hilarious, they found the bones of, of Caiaphas uh, just recently and, and just uh, a few decades ago in Jerusalem. And so we have Jesus come before Annas, come before Caiaphas, and Caiaphas sends him off to Pontius Pilate. So we continue to read as Jesus goes before Pontius Pilate, let's read in John 18. We're going to have a few segments of Jesus before Pilate and some interactions with Pilate. Uh, John 18:28 through 32, it reads like this. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. And Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So we see they he enters into the governor's Headquarters. That's the praetorium. That's where the commanding officer of the Roman military uh, unit governed. They would govern in this specific place, and they had these specific places throughout the Roman province. And the commanding officer of that time was Pontius Pilate. Pilate reigned over Caesarea and the palace of Herod that he had built. And when he would come to Jerusalem, he'd go to the praetorian in Jerusalem. So a little history around Pontius Pilate. He would received his appointment under Tiberius in AD 26, and he reigned for 11 years to AD 37. So he was around the time uh, leading the, the governing rule uh, during the, uh, the life of Jesus. He was morally weak. He was a vacillator. He tried to cover his flaws with his stubbornness and his brutality, the history books tell us. And early, early, that Friday morning, again, Thursday night, Jesus was having dinner with his disciples. He then went into a garden after teaching them some. He was then arrested late into that night. And by the, the first um, part of the earliest of the morning, he was before the high priest. And now he's before Pontius Pilate. So through the night, this is taking place Thursday night into Friday. And then uh, Pilate comes out to meet the religious leaders. And the reason why it was about to be Passover, and according to the Mishnah, the, one of the ways that the Jews would, uh, one of the laws of that day, it says that they couldn't go into uh, the headquarters or they would be defiled. And so Pilate came out to them to talk to them. And he says, what are your accusations? What are your charges against this man? Why would you wake me up? To have these charges. What what is so important about what's happening here? He knew that what they wanted was a scheme to leverage the Roman willingness for crucifixion. So the Jews were not allowed to have this type of criminal punishment. And so they were trying to leverage the Roman rule to enable them to use crucifixion to put Jesus to death. So the charge... Him with accusations, and in this moment they were political accusations around his rule, wanting to overtake Rome, and so forth. And we pick up in verse 33, it says this. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? And Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? And Jesus answered, "You say that I am a king for this purpose I was born and for this purpose I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my my voice." And Pilate said to him, "What is truth?" So Pilate goes from outside where the Jewish religious leaders are, he comes back inside to his headquarters and he just confronts Jesus and he's just like, "What is going on? Who are you? Are you the king?" of the Jews. And we get this unique exchange within the Gospel of John particularly. And it's culminating when Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. Again, a reminder of the tale of two kingdoms, that there is a kingdom of this world and there is the kingdom of Jesus. And they are colliding in real time, even in 2024. And this is the worldview that we are inviting you into to see that Jesus, he rules and he reigns, and he created all things, and he sustains all things, and he died to redeem all things, and he will come again to restore all things. That is the the worldview of the kingdom of Jesus that we are continually inviting you into as we gather to remember the story. And Jesus says, my kingdom, it is not of this world. See, you are a part of a kingdom, my friends, that is clashing, A a tale of two Kingdoms, And as we're going to see throughout this text, that we're reminded to submit to the kingdom of Jesus. So Pilate is, is realizing that Jesus is a victim to the Sanhedrin plot. And his goal is to wash his hands. His goal is to, to remove Jesus back onto their hands and away from himself. And he doesn't realize that that's not going to be an option. And so right after we, we meet Barabbas, and we're going to get more into Barabbas next week. But suffice it to say, Pilate tries to use Barabbas as a scapegoat. The crowd is not willing. And we pick up in chapter 19, verse 1. It says this, Then Pilate took Jesus and, and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. And Pilate went out again and and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to him, Behold the man. And when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him. For again, I find no guilt in him, the Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to the law, he ought to die, because he was, he's made himself the Son of God. Then Pilate heard this statement, and he was even more afraid. So what happens here is that Pilate's trying to find an olive branch with the, the people, trying to appease the people, and the way he does that is by getting Jesus flogged. And so he's thinking, if I can get Jesus flogged, I don't want to kill him. I don't think he deserves it. But if I can appease the people by having him flogged, then maybe they will say that's sufficient and we can move on. So flogging or scourging was a very brutal form of punishment. You were stripped, you were tied to a pole, and you were beaten by tortures. The whip had leather. It was a leather thong with pieces of bone or lead or metal. And you'll be whipped dozens of times. Eyewitnesses would say it was to, to the bone and even the entrails of a human that were exposed. This was a graphic, bloody moment that was taking place. And so as Jesus is brought back from being flogged, the soldiers mock him by th- putting this crown of thorns. We have these little rose bushes and they have little tiny thorns, but these thorns are not like the thorns that are being talked about here. These thorns that are being talked about here are much larger and they, were, they would dry these thorns and they placed this over his head and you can imagine what his face now looks like with this crown of thorn uh, entering into the skin of Jesus. Now this is painful, this is vulgar, this is uh, a mocking of Jesus with a with a purple military cloak put over Jesus. They begin to say hail. They begin to they pronounce Jesus and saying hail. See everything about this moment was was a mockery. The crown was a sign of kingship. The purple cloak was a sign of royalty. The statement hail was a pronouncement of allegiance. There's an American art historian named Albert Boheim, and he says this about this word hail. The brothers stretch out their arms in a salute that uh, has since become associated with tyranny. The hail Caesar of antiquity, although at the time of Horati a Caesar had yet to be born, was transformed into hail Hitler of the modern period. The fraternal intimacy brought about by Horati's Uh, Dedication to absolute principles of victory or death is closely related to the establishment of the paternal order, order. And the total commitment or blind obedience of a single exclusive group lies the potential the potentiality of the authoritarian state. The point is this, that this statement hail is, com- is designed to be a complete allegiance and submission to the king that they're, they're saying it to. And again, in this moment, they're simply mocking Jesus as this one who claims to be king. So crown, robe, pronouncement, mocking Jesus, the king and his kingdom. And once more, Pilate steps Aside, and he delivers this verdict. He presents Jesus in this current state after being flogged, crown on his head, purple robe around his body. He pronounces him and he says, Behold the man, swollen, bruised, unnoticeable. There's so much uh, irony baked into this moment that here is the man that you find so dangerous. You can imagine him beaten to a pulp with even deeper irony that this is the word made flesh who has dwelt among us. This is the one who in the beginning created all things. And this is the one who entered into our story to redeem us. Behold the man. And he says, I find no fault in him. You can be responsible to crucify him you can be responsible to have the guilt upon yourself again he repeats himself I find no guilt in him as if Pilate is saying you bring him to me for trial but you um, but I am not going to accept the judgment you have put upon him and then they respond no longer political they now say he claims to be the son of God and in this moment the only son of God at least in the Roman time was one like the Caesar. And so Pilate is the one who submits to Caesar. And so he's having this collision course of two kingdoms. The kingdom of Rome and the kingdom of Jesus. And in this moment he's having to make a choice. Do I submit to Caesar as my king or do I submit to this one? As my king. And the text says that he's even more afraid. And he enters back into the praetorium. And one of my favorite moments in this trial, we read these next few verses. It says this, and he entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given, from you, uh, given you from above. Therefore, he delivered me over to you as greater sin. And from then on, then on Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you were not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in Aramaic Gabatha. Now it was the day of the preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him! Away with him! crucify him. And Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. Pilate comes back into this room. Again, imagine this moment. Jesus is beaten to a pulp, unrecognizable, unnoticeable, he has just been flogged. He has the crown of thorns still on his head, blood drying all over his body. And Pilate comes in terrified of this one. And he says to him, where are you from? And Jesus gives no answer. The lamb, standing, swollen, bruised, dripping with blood. And in real time, Jesus' silences Jesus's silence shrinks Pilate's pseudo power and its grip into its rightful place, which is vapor. In this moment, Pil- uh, Jesus' silence does so much to the rightful place of who Pilate is, and the rightful one to who Jesus is. See, the divine hand was at work, and Pilate had no control. His authority was given from above. See, the reality of the two kingdoms was being exposed even for but just a moment. And Jesus says to him, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. See, Jesus in this moment, until the end, is trusting that his Father is at work and his Father has power, all power, and that he will bring about what he had promised. It reminds me of the story in John 6 when Jesus claims to this massive group of disciples you have to eat my blood and drink, sorry, eat my flesh and drink my blood. And he's referring to the elements of communion. And many left, disgusted by what Jesus was saying. And Jesus looks over to his disciples and he says, will you leave too? And the disciples respond, they said, where else can we go? It's you alone who has the words of eternal life. And in the same way, Jesus is trusting to his death That his father has him and cares for him and is at work. See, Jesus had learned that he would and could trust his father in heaven. So he stood before the most powerful man in the region, beaten to a pulp, crowned, making his face red after being flogged. And he says, you have no authority unless my father gave it to you from above. This is that unique moment that John's trying to remind us of as he moves us to the death of Jesus. He did it first last week in John 18 at the beginning, and he does it again here. Where He's reminding us with this consistent theme, something he wants us to see, something he wants us to not forget as we move towards the culmination of the gospel. That Jesus is not some mere sacrificial, weak lamb being led to the slaughter at the mercy of the military and religious leaders. He is the unstoppable lamb that even on the, on the ver- at the very end, the last moments of his death, he is standing before the Roman ruler and he is saying, you have no authority unless it's been given to you from above. There's this beauty that John is reminding us of as he's moving us towards the death of Jesus. And from, from then on, Pilate sought to free Jesus. And the The religious leaders say, you're not a friend of Caesar if you submit to another king. And then Pilate collapses to the crowd and hands Jesus over to be crucified. See, it's moments like this where we are reminded of the collision course of two kingdoms. We see it throughout the Gospels. We see it throughout the Old and New Testament. The collision course of the kingdom of God and the collision course of the kingdom of this world coming together over and over again. See, friends, you cannot serve two masters. You either can serve um, mammon like Jesus talked about in the Sermon on the Mount, you can serve money, you can serve the things of this world, or you can serve the king and the kingdom of Jesus. You cannot do both. We will all come to multiple crossroads in our lives where we're unable to serve both, and we have to show our allegiance to one or the other. And Jesus invites us time and time and time again to submit to his kingdom and to find our hearts free from the kingdom of this world. See, there is a tale of two kingdoms, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of this world. And the two kingdoms are nothing like each other. There are prototypes found in this story, in the kingdom of Pilate and then the kingdom of Jesus. See, the kingdom of Pilate, which is the kingdom of this world, is deeply insecure, desperate for power, longing to prove yourself, terrified of being rejected by others, leveraging uh, others at the expense of our own desires, crumbling under the weight of others' opinions, spineless. That is the kingdom of this world. See, the kingdom of Jesus is deeply grounded in an identity that is not our own, that has been bought by another and given to us. There's a tremendous amount of trust in the kingdom of Jesus. Security not found in what we have, not found in our circumstances, not found in our relational status. Our security is found in God, stable in God, Hope resting upon God, future resting upon God. See, Jesus didn't need to prove himself to the masses. He wanted to be obedient to his Father. He didn't need power because power doesn't come through using people, but serving people. See, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world are polarizing in nature. And we see them on display here. It is here where we are reminded that the way of Jesus is a way that leads to life, but it comes through death. See, the life in the kingdom of Jesus comes through giving up of ourselves, not seeking to save ourselves. See, the invitation of the kingdom of Jesus is a narrow way. And the entryway and the ground by which the kingdom of Jesus stands upon, the pathway that, it, that we walk upon is grace and grace alone. And it... It follows a life of surrender and a life of repentance and a life of faith to the king. Submission to his values as a distinct people is the way of the kingdom of Jesus. It reminds me of the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount found in the Beatitudes. I'd love to read them with you. This makes up so much of what the kingdom of Jesus is about. And he opened his mouth and taught them, it says in Matthew 5, verse 2 and following. Blessed are the... for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you. You wonder if he's thinking about the future day of his own cross. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you, falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Friends, Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. We don't fight against flesh and blood. The first don't win in the kingdom of Jesus. Let me say that again. The first don't win in the kingdom of Jesus. In the kingdom of Jesus, the first will be last, and the last will be first. And his invitation to all is to trust in him as the king and the hero, to live as if this life isn't it, to surrender and to trust. And spoiler, he's going to die. And he's going to rise and he will come again. And we now are in the in-between waiting and any who want to partake in the kingdom of Jesus Can by trusting in Him as the provision of God for us. So, the invitation to us is to lean into trusting and to submitting to the kingdom of Jesus, to live lives of integrity, to actually believe that this life isn't it, to actually believe that you will give an account for your life, and to allow that to shape how you live now. As we follow Jesus here and now, it invites us to be men and women of integrity men and women of confession, men and women of repentance, that where our lives don't align with the kingdom of Jesus, we repent and we confess and we turn our hearts back to him. It reminds us how we, the kingdom of Jesus invites us into uh, a posture of work that's honoring to Jesus. The work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. See, in the kingdom of Jesus, we work for Jesus regardless of what you do. Regardless of you are an accountant or a counselor or a teacher or an engineer, you are invited to work as to the Lord and not for men and women. The kingdom of Jesus invites us to live our lives believing that if we sow, uh, how how, how does Jesus put it? I'm losing it in real time and now I'm in front of people. And in those moments, it can be kind of awkward. But when Jesus says, store up your treasures in heaven, not on earth, Store up, actually believe that you can set aside a nest egg and put all of your investment into here and now. Or you can be intentional in the life of generosity. Yes, save. Yes, Proverbs talk about that. But also knowing that there's more to come. And actually living a life in such a way of generosity that says, I want to live for the kingdom of Jesus with our time. Our time can prove so much about what we value. And does our time say, that we are more in line with the kingdom of this world, or we are more in line with the kingdom of Jesus. And how we spend our free time, our spare time, is it investing only into me-centric things. Are we looking to give our lives away? See, the kingdom of this world is on a collision course in your life today with the kingdom of Jesus. And we're invited not to earn our way to God. That is farthest from the point. But it is a, to submit our lives under the grace of Jesus and his kingdom and to say, I want to live my life in such a way that you invite me to live. This is true of our marriages. This is through, uh, true of our, our relationships, of our parenting, of our grandparenting. This is all spaces where we can say, am I more in line with the kingdom of Jesus? Or am I, or am I more in line with the kingdom of Pilate? Jesus is my kingdom is not of this world. And friends, the kingdom of Jesus is not of this world. And we are invited to remember that there's something much more majestic and beautiful happen. You might feel like your life is just this, this hamster wheel. This groundhog day, we're like, we're doing this thing again. You can feel that. More diapers, more Excel sheets, more the same old, same old, same old. But man, we are invited to be pulled back a little bit. And remember that you are invited into something so much more greater. Just clocking in, clocking out, saving until you retire, thinking that that's going to satisfy you and it ain't going to. It'll have more questions than you think it will but to actually invest into believing that the kingdom of Jesus is real, it is at work, you're invited to submit to it, you're invited to follow him and his ways, to be distinct as people here now as we look for kingdom come. That's why we call this church Sojourn, because we are journeying through, believing there's a better day coming. There is a king and a kingdom, and we as a people want to submit to that together. His kingdom is not of this world. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray.